0: What's in the bunker? The most valuable substance on Earth. Ronald Reagan's sperm. Hi, and
1: welcome back to the AMPS podcast. My name's Owen Peters.
2: And I'm Owen Shirley. And today you find us back in our studios talking to each other remotely on a typically overcast and damp British summer's day. And we began this episode with an excerpt from a brand new podcast series, Hot White Heist.
1: Yeah, so New York based sound designer Jeremy Bloom, who you might know from our previous episode, Ambient Isolation, reached out to us to talk about his work on creating this series and also invited Foley artist Joanna Fang to tell us about how she went about creating Foley for an audio only narrative. Now, uh, they're both really experienced professionals in creating sound for film and television and working to picture. So we get to hear all about how they approached creating meaning through sound without any image.
2: Yeah, it's a fascinating discussion where they go into the workflow that they developed. Jeremy was actually brought onto the project ahead of production, and he talks about having the privilege to have time to plan and experiment in the process. They also discuss... Developing new techniques in terms of the workflow. And I particularly love listening to Joanna discussing auditioning shoes. But before you hear our recent interview with them, we'll play you the trailer for this series.
0: First, let me tell you about the bunker. Deep underneath the Space Needle in Seattle, there's a secret government bunker. You've never heard of it because it's a secret. That's how secrets work. If you manage to sneak past the guards or somehow fake clearance to get into the bunker itself, what for? What could possibly be worth all the trouble? What's in the bunker? The most valuable substance on Earth. Ronald Reagan's sperm.
2: It's a sperm bank heist. What else do
3: you need to know? From Audible comes Hot White Heist featuring bon Yang. We're only recruiting queers for this. They're the only people I trust. They're also the only people I know. Cynthia Nixon.
0: Lesbians don't shrivel. We ripen.
3: Jane Lynch.
0: This has been a farce from the beginning, and now we're in real jeopardy.
3: MJ Rodriguez.
0: You will steal that sperm today.
3: Bianca Del Rio. What if they do something weird
2: with my genetic material? And a star-studded queer ensemble, including Shannon Woodward, Abby Jacobson, Cheyenne Jackson, Margaret Cho, Stephanie Beatrice, Peppermint, John Cameron Mitchell, Jonathan Bailey, Alan Cumming, Katja Zomalodzikova, and Tony Kushner. Hot White Heist, available only
3: on Audible. Let's take some loads.
1: Jeremy, welcome back. Thanks very much for getting in touch and uh, rejoining us on the AMPS podcast.
3: Yeah, it's awesome to see you and uh, really excited to be here with uh, Foley artist Joanna Fang as well.
1: Yeah. Hey, Joanna. Thank you very much for joining us too. Hey, everyone.
2: Glad to be here. Yeah, good to meet you guys.
1: And uh, we're here to talk about uh, your latest, I guess, latest um, production, a podcast series called Hot White Heist. From what I've heard of it so far, it sounds like a great series. Really funny, really interesting, um, and just loads to talk about on a number of different levels. So it'd be really interesting to know how you both got involved with the project, where it started for you.
3: Sure. So so just to clarify, Hot White Heist is like a fully rendered heist movie like james bond or oceans 11 or something like that and it has all the kind of plot twists and spy craft and action and that kind of thing but and this is what was really exciting for me as a sound designer all of that stuff all of the spy movie stuff but without one key thing and that's the visuals so it's a spy movie without visuals told entirely through audio so of course as a sound designer it was like a a dream in terms of like the level of kind of creative challenges that the script presented to me that I could sort of solve and work with amazing people like Joanna here to solve or our editor, Dan Timmons. And so I was brought onto the project um, because the producers of the show, Broadway Video, who also produce the program Saturday Night Live, they uh, were familiar with another podcast I worked on called Nancy, which was a queer narrative documentary kind of podcast radio show uh, produced by WNYC, which is the public radio station in New York city. And it had a very, very loyal following. And so I guess they had heard my name through that knew that I also did film stuff, museum stuff, that kind of thing. And so I guess as, as a fan of that show, they're like, Oh, we're making another queer podcast, but very, very different. Would you be interested in working on this? And they gave me a little preview of the script and I read it. And like by the first page, I was like, Oh my God, I have to work on this. This is incredible.
1: (laughs) And so did you get in touch with Joanna as well? Or Joanna did?
3: Yeah. So, um, Joanna works at alchemy post, uh, which is like, has a reputation of being one of the very, very best Foley studios in the United States. And certainly on the East coast, I I've worked with them tangentially on some film projects and, uh, it was actually a bit of a process sort of expanding our production budget a little bit to include Foley. but we knew that would bring so much extra life to the project. It's pretty rare in my experience on a podcast to like get the opportunity to work with somebody as amazing as Joanna or a, a place like Alchemy. While it might be conventional on a film, there isn't kind of like an established convention of doing that on podcasts. Mm-hmm. And so even the opportunity to work with them on a few days was like the thing that brought it from 90 to 100 for me in terms of establishing a sense of naturalism and that kind of thing.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, we're really lucky cuz at Alchemy we um we have a tendency to always take on interesting projects in a lot of fields that you wouldn't necessarily associate with uh foley. So for instance, we've done virtual reality, we've done 360 work, we've done video games, pretty much anything that gives us an opportunity to ask questions about um, like what are the most essential needed sounds to tell a story, especially human performative sound effects. Those are the things that really intrigue us. So when Jeremy came up and said, hey, I have this hysterical podcast with Bo and Yang and a bunch of these other heavy hitters. um, It was it was a great opportunity to really uh, perfect our understanding of podcast fully, which is something we've been We've been doing a lot of during the pandemic.
1: Well, mm. oh, that's interesting to hear. Yeah, yeah. for me as well, it's first time I've heard of, you know, a lu- the luxury that is podcast Foley. And um, we're so used to working in sort of audiovisual terms and thinking about Foley as a performance to match picture. Yeah. So, so how do you um, go about sort of planning and building and, and performing it? Do you work off a list of Jeremy's desired ideas or is it kind of more script based?
0: A little bit of both. I mean, one of the big things that we like to do with podcasts, because there's no visual element, um, we love to get the scripts and we like to read through them at least to get a sense of where the story's going. Uh, And Jeremy uh, provided us uh, cue sessions and pro tools so that we could listen to the dialogue and listen to the sound design that he had already done, uh, which was already very cinematic and quite quite lovely, uh, Jeremy. Um, And then also give us kind of indications of like, okay, from this moment to this moment, we need Judy, uh, that's Bowen's character, to walk from a uh, from the interior of a home to an exterior of uh, gravel. And, uh, you know, when we listen to the dialogue we hear Bowen's vocal performance or we get a sense of timing where the uh, sound effects are already cut in, we're able to custom fit a footstep or a rustle or a prop performance to um, kind of... Uh, to be in sequence with the the blocking that we're kind of developing in our ears as we listen to it. So um, that was one of the big, big uh, methods that we did. And yeah, surely we don't have a visual, but often we'll, we'll leave the Pro Tools screen on, on both the, what we typically look at for a video screen, we usually leave Pro Tools running. So that way I could see the waveforms. So if there was like a really complex moment where we had to get you know these vials to hit right on these transients right on these car hits you know i could see the visual the waveforms coming up and then like like guitar hero or dance dance revolution (laughs) (laughs) like hitting them right on the (laughs) sink. you know so um that's kind of that's that's generally how we do them it's it's such a different way of thinking yeah yeah it's it
3: it was really interesting for me because like I mean, I guess it, two things. One, in you know, when you're doing spotting fully for film, the the word that Joanna used, blocking, I think, is really, uh, really appropriate. It's like almost like you have we all have to get on the same page in our minds about the kind of environment that the characters are in and and where things are architecturally and what they might be doing and syncing it to the kind of rhythm of the dialogue rather than a visual reference is interesting. Mm-hmm. And w- one thing that I found. Um, sort of in every step of the Foley process from spotting to um, Joanna's performance to the process of editing that performance in and mixing it was that while um, Foley on a film is often about adjusting things to be super precise, to line up in sync with picture in a kind of frame accurate way. I I actually found on this project that a lot of the work had to do with um, kind of creating very natural imprecisions and kind of, Moving stuff around or performing stuff around the dialogue in a way that that feels human and has that kind of doesn't have the kind of rhythmic cadence that we might have if I were just to use a sampler to to put things in or that kind of thing. So it was interesting to me. It was actually uh, a pretty different approach, and we had to sort of you know emphasize certain kind of like oh the character is grumpy and so like with no other uh, ways to indicate that other than the quality of the character's voice and the sound of their movements. Um, it it's almost sort of a, an exaggerated thing from what you might find in film. It was really it was a really interesting learning process for me to to have the opportunity to do that on a podcast.
2: Yeah. Do you think that um, because of you having the kind of the privilege of being able to use Joanna and their facilities and their kind of high end approach to foley, as you say, compared to kind of doing it as an edit or do using it as samplers? Do you think that you ended up Sort of leaning on the Foley even more in the final sound design than you might have? Did did you find that you were kind of, it was, I don't know, kind of bringing something additional out of the work that you weren't expecting, maybe?
3: I, I think so. We, we did a lot of work, um, temping in, even temping in footsteps, uh, before we shot Foley just with Edward, uh, the contact instrument. Yeah. And, and it was done very, very roughly and not in a way that was presentable at all, but just to kind of, figure out certain timing aspects because you know one of the interesting things about a a podcast like this or a radio drama and this applies both to it really applies to everything but especially fully and even more so music is unlike in a film we have the ability to um so like in a film you can oh sorry my doorbell's ringing one second (laughs) <laughs>
1: Come some Foley footsteps for the podcast.
3: Yeah, now I have a recording of my doorbell. It's great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. We're good. Um, so, like in a film, if you're writing a film score or doing Foley to a film, there there's some sense of established um, structure in that the the picture edit is made and you're constrained by sync, like the the lips, assuming that it's a, a film with spoken word, you know, mostly characters' lips are moving around, and, like, you don't have the ability to move around the dialogue that much. You can cheat it with a little B-roll here and there, that kind of thing, but generally you're composing the music and you're composing the foley and the sound design all around the dialogue to fit it in. In what is both a huge blessing and sometimes uh, a crazy curse in a project like Hot White Heist, we can also move the dialogue around to accommodate musical choices or to accommodate Foley choices. So we actually temped in a lot of the Foley, um, not not because we... uh, It it was more kind of to reveal pacing choices in the dialogue and plan out where we wanted spaces in the dialogue for Joanna's performance to really shine. So um, I'd say that ultimately... The, we worked out that those kind of um, big picture timings ahead of time, and then what Joanna brought to the table was a real, um, a real sense of kind of o- organic movement and naturalism um, that is quite uh, painstaking to create through any any other manner, if not impossible. Um, mm. Especially when it comes to Russell, especially when it comes to footsteps, and footsteps actually play a really key role in the script. There, there are many times when um, the the main character Judy who's robbing the sperm bank, of <laughs> course, um, has, has a favorite pair of high heels uh, and he's not very good at running in them and it sort <laughs> of trips him up, oh yeah, so to speak, uh, in, in the most inopportune moments.
2: <laughs> so yes, you can't do that in Edward. <laughs> no way. <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> Excellent. Why
0: well, don't you wear pumps today?
3: Alright, girl with the dragon tattoo. You don't tell me how to do my job. I won't tell you how to do yours, okay?
0: Oh, I loved getting those heels for you because it was—it was also a question of finding the right shoe. That—that that kind of it, you know. This judy's favorite high heels but but obviously a little clumsy in them so something we did and something was really fun to do was auditioning shoes so we did you know the first few episodes and we provided okay here's here's generally our idea of like your your average heel and now let's kind of tweak plus or minus where we want to go with it so one of the really fun processes was uh with jeremy and with adam our uh, our showrunner kind of figuring out like okay well here's Here's three or four different types of heels. Which one do we think represents Judy the best or fits the mix the best? And um, that's it, something you that, you know, you could do with a controller. But to then hear the context of the performance with the shoe. Okay, so these trips or there's this great sequence where um, Judy's sneaking through uh, a train trying to get, I think, a, a briefcase with that's attached to handcuffs. These are all very textural things. Um getting all those things to play together and then swapping the heels and saying, okay, same performance, but let's see what happens if we used a lower heel or or almost a loafer to a degree. Uh. Tap your mic twice when you're ready for the code. Seven, two, five, nine, nine. You have about 15 seconds of tunnel left. Tap your mic twice if you made the exchange. Get out of there. And that's the type of uh, bespoke uh, performance work that you don't often get with a, a VST. Um, and also the other thing was like temping in the feet and temping in some of the foley before we shot like the final big deal wasn't just great in terms of hearing a audio reference, but in terms of asking ourselves, what is the most elegant uh, amount of foley t- and the most sophisticated ways to do it to provide the most amount of story? Because uh, something with the podcast Foley world is that we're still trying to figure out the language. Right. You know, on one hand it's easy for us to harken back to radio and go for the boldest sounds, in the most specific ways. Right. But um, we're also expecting cinema. We're expecting our podcast to sound like, you know, beautiful, almost like 5.1 or like a very cinematic experience. Mm. So we find ourselves trying to balance that equation of how much additional coverage do we need to fill out, the soundscape, but at what point does it become redundant and do we lose sight of a uh, clean audio storytelling? So working with Jeremy was really effective to hear the temp and go, okay, this does work in terms of timing. This will work in terms of this is the right sound effect to sell this moment. Um, now we just need a fully performance to finesse and nuance um, the idea of the sound and the timing of the sound to accommodate uh, the story and the dialogue better.
3: Sure, yeah. And all all that, I should say, was really amplified by the fact that Adam, um, who wrote the script, Adam Goldman, he, um, you know, this, uh, w- one thing I like to say, like, it's not, this isn't like a, an old school radio drama where there's like a horse clopping by every now and then. Maybe somebody goes ding dong and rings the bell. They go, <laughs> eh, open the door. <laughs> say, oh, I'm inside now. Close the door. Adam really has like a very deep respect for sound um, in that he really chose to lean on it almost as much as the dialogue in terms of facilitating the the furthering of the story. There's so there are too many moments in this in the series to mention that where the sound effects are really what carry the story forward, or in some cases the music. And it's to the point where like even my mom, who like does not know anything about what I do, was like, wow, like the sound effects really like move the story forward is crazy. And yeah, so I mean that that was both exceptionally challenging, uh, made it one of the most exciting projects I've ever worked on, and also really up the stakes for uh, making sure that we get those types of decisions correct. You know, because it, it's the audience is depending on it to know what is going on. Yeah, yeah,
1: definitely. I, one of the things that seemed key to me was you've got a large ensemble cast, like a very wordy script, which is all great, but you know, you need those moments in between to let the sound effects communicate story as well and shift space. So it sounds like maybe you received the dialogue tracks with that consideration in mind, or was it more elaborate than that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I definitely received the dialogue tracks with that in mind, and it's because um, Broadway video, being as professional as they are, uh, brought me on before the script was complete. So I I had an opportunity to be in the writer's room with Adam and sort of really think very, very far ahead about how these different elements can interact in the script and how they can all interlock and talk to each other um, and that kind of thing. And then I, I was involved in the production as well. So, you know, during every recording session at the end, we had a whole effort section where I would join in and be like, okay, you know, it was all about gathering the kind of extra, extra vocalizations and material we might need to build the kind of sequences that joanna was talking about earlier whether it's sneaking in the train or you know running through a laser field whatever it might be you know you can have the best foley in the world but if you don't also have the sound of the character Mm. um Doing those things that's the thing that really glues everything together um it's funny actually one of our actors who who had to dance through a laser field sort of oceans 12 style happened to be a former gymnast what? so she was <laughs> like oh what like what am i doing like a cartwheel here or like a triple backflip double handspring <laughs> i'm gonna
0: use it to tie my hair up why so i can do
3: this mm-hmm.
0: double twist into a standing back handspring back tuck you could just do that this whole time it never came up
2: so when did the production start and and were you um having to manage that with through covid or were you able to get all
3: the uh, the talent into the same rooms yeah so production happened during the height of covid right and initially we were exploring all sorts of at home remote kit recording options and you know thanks to the amazing coordination of our uh, producer Mark Valdez uh, we were actually able to record every single part in a studio our actors union here SAG-AFTRA has a whole list of approved studios with protocols and that kind of thing so Mm -hmm. amazingly uh, we could get everybody in studios, the flip side to that is very often we could not get people in studios at the same time. So a lot of the series was recorded in sides. Yeah. To kind of curtail some of the the kind of extra workload that that created, Dan Timmons, our dialogue editor and and who did so much more than dialogue editing, really like a amazing creative partner on this project. He and I provided the producers and the script supervisor with a template google sheet like an excel sheet that they could log takes in and that was all um set up sort of secretly with some hidden columns to line up with sound miner so uh we would get the recordings from the studio every night and we would get that sheet from our script supervisor and then we had a, a little bit of an automated process where we merged them together and married all the script notes as metadata directly into the files so that months later we could search along all those terms we could know if any take was sort of called out as a select and and nothing got lost and that made it pretty easy to marry up all the sides um mm and and I'll say that loop group was sort of the most challenging aspect of that in that there are quite a few crowd scenes in the series um especially there there are quite a few scenes that take place at drag performances. Um, which is another, this, this was another, like, moment where really all the elements came together in so many cool ways, whether it's sort of Joanna's foley of the drag queen marching across a hollow stage and the music and every, everything came together. But for that, what, what we ended up doing, because we had this amazing cast of queer performers like there are, there were all these drag queens from uh, former contestants of RuPaul's Drag Race associated with the project and all sorts of people so um, we did a kind of sem- sem- like one-sided loop group thing where we had people kind of improvise kind of like slightly kooky conversations with themselves just imagining the kinds of conversations that they might have in the space whether it's gossiping about an ex or you know talking about you know uh, reacting to the performers you know all, all, all sorts of things and then we sort of like very carefully tried to sort of stitch them all together in ways that created little mini mini conversations with each other and it's funny you know um in a way reconstructing a drag bar uh (laughs) took as much intricacy um and as much uh attention to detail and time as some of the heaviest action sequences of the show did because we have to have you know we have to have really every time the performer does something we have to build some sort of reaction from the crowd to make it feel really natural so that was that was great fun
1: oh, yeah voices and crowds can be really tricky to get right especially you know yeah in a normal situation let alone with social distancing limitations so yeah exactly um so like that just kind of brings me on to another thought which is um all of the uh the additional work you you do add and did you do a lot of kind of unique recording for this yeah series?
3: yeah a ton um but you know between Joanna's uh Foley and prop stuff and then prop stuff that I recorded and um a lot of a lot of field recordings just you know I was stuck at home with nothing to do other than field record stuff so like for instance um there's one scene where we're deep in the bunker and all these alarms are blazing and I had recorded those just a week before there was a giant winter blizzard in my neighborhood I live in in kind of the port area of New York City and so there were all sorts of like weird there all there's all sorts of weird kind of uh, industrial infrastructure around here, and during the blizzard, everything was going crazy, and there were all these like alarms going off and that kind of thing. Um, the sound of the the specialty vials where the uh, presidential sperm that the crew is stealing uh, was a particularly important sound to get right, and it was a, a really good example of sort of layers that. I temped in and then Joanna provided all sorts of Joanna can I, I actually don't know what uh props used for that ultimately.
0: Oh, I actually took some video of what we used, but we we have a bunch of different um, you know, like glass vials and eyedroppers and things like that. And I know there's kind of this, there's a moment where we have decoy. Uh, vials and then we have the real vials so it's like yeah. making sure that the the decoy ones sound cheaper have a little bit more plastic to them and the real ones are just made of pure glass so we're using these nice like eyedropper uh bottles um but really it was like when it comes to uh sfx and foley working together uh i always feel like foley's big job is to um it's it's to satisfy needs that aren't aren't met by an effects library like if affects if an effect works it's like oh great. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. I could hear it and I could be, okay, I get what you're doing here. Now let me, let me give you some more connective tissue. Let me try to get my best impersonation of that. Um, because you know, you might be using an effect that was recorded 10 years ago with like a, a 416, uh, on, you know, DA D88 machine. It's like, okay, well we could, we could hear what the final result is. Let's, let's take it from there and then let's create all the connective tissue to get you to your next, uh, effect. So it's like something that's a big, big deal with, with working when we have the temp effects or when we know what the final is going to sound like, uh, to get that collaboration going, it's really key for us to be like, okay, we will humble ourselves to this awesome effect, but now we will try to help bridge the gap between effects and make something that really works. Um, one of my favorite moments from, from this sh- this uh, podcast was we had this great perspective shift moment where we're inside a car. We're kind of, are kind of like our, uh, our, our mind's eye is kind of envisioning these vials inside the car. And then through the use of sound design and through Jeremy's incredible work with the music and with the, with the dialogue and with the Foley, we're able to get the perspective of that vial inside the car to then go outside of the window of the car. In slow motion. To, in slow motion. No, to, then, <laughs> to then land on the ground and then get like steamrolled by a car. That's funny.
3: What's funny, hon? Toby, hang on.
0: I think someone is following us. What? Ah, what's up? Everyone okay usually if you were to hear that prompt for a podcast you'd be like oh that's really ambitious because you know that's a lot of perspective changes and a lot of things we're used to seeing right mm.
3: even even in the script Adam said in parentheses
0: and it says can we do this <laughs> <laughs> i remember listening to the temp and because we saw the script and we're like okay this is gonna be interesting (laughs) and jeremy nailed it like it was so weird to just just with the headphones on hear it and then see it and to do so knowing full well that our audience will be experiencing this for the first time they're not going to be looking at a script but to hear it and be like oh we've successfully translated the language of cinematic sound into a podcast with this one particular motif and that the callback is so strong and the ideas are so strong. And then once you include the Foley and the effects and the pause and like the bullet time effect, it worked as a piece of audio, as a piece of storytelling. So it was like things like that where those glass vials, it was like really important to have consistency and musicality, performance and rhythm and to have a Foley mixer, my Foley mixer, Connor Nagy, who unfortunately is uh, on another uh, meeting right now, you know, he he's mixing the Foley uh, just enough so that way it should be easier for Jeremy to then take it and then put it through Alta and and really get it to sit right. But we kept talking about like working on axis to off axis to try to give it as much as much harmonic play as possible. Mm. So that way it'd be easier to mix. and It sounds more cinematic than if I just went right up on the mic and did it. So, yeah, like,
3: yeah, um, yeah. A good example of that connective tissue that Joanna's talking about is in that I was also thinking of that scene. And so that scene, you know, took days and days of work even to get to the point where we were able to hand it off to Joanna. But the thing that really, um, I I think, makes that scene sort of effective and, and puts the listener in the car with everybody is Joanna did some passes. So, so you know, we laid out all the pacing of, like, when the car is rammed from behind. The, it's a car chase, so there's a car behind it kind of like – chasing it and hitting it from the side to side and that kind of thing. And Joanna did a number of passes of objects inside the car kind of so so you have the car you have the car being hit but then Joanna handled all the objects in the car that kind of react to that and so all the the luggage kind of shifting back and forth and all the passengers you know sort of shifting their weight on the seats and those kinds of reactions i think um are what a fully is perfectly suited for and b what can really sell a scene like that especially if you don't have any visuals mm. yeah it
1: works really well and i'm really curious actually Jeremy how long that process took to to sort of hit it where you felt like it was working in your mind's eye was it an evolution of details or yeah yeah
3: <laughs> yeah what's interesting is because um I'm used to sort of film workflows where like, if I'm doing sound effects editing or sound design on a film, I might start with backgrounds. I might sort of work up layers like that. And I found that um, one of the more, because because of what I mentioned earlier and that the dialogue can move around too, um, we kind of discovered as we were working through this project that um, working on elements in the order that they affect the timing of everything else um, was sort of the best way to sketch these these kinds of moments out. So very first off, we got the dialogue paced and we got it to a place where everybody, the whole directorial team, um, Alan Cumming, who is our director, and Adam Uh, who was our writer and our producers, Gabby and Mark, everybody was happy with what takes we were choosing. Everybody was happy with the vocal performance like this. We felt like we coaxed the best vocal performance that we could and it's paced out in a way that feels good and keeps the story moving. And then working in order of more elements that can affect timing, uh, I actually found that um, music was the next thing to add. So I did a lot of work, and I can speak to this in a second, but I did a lot of work temping the music and it completely changed my relationship with temp music as a sound designer. Hmm. And then after that hard sound effects fully and finally backgrounds last because, because I don't, I don't want to put in backgrounds and then have everything move around and have to recut them. Hmm. Um, In in terms of the music, which I mentioned um, it, it was an interesting discovery in a way I haven't worked before. So the, our composer, Charlie Rosen was kind of considered part of our, broader sound design department so um, I was in conversation with him in the same way that I was with Joanna about thinking about how the music might interact with all these different elements Um, and communicating about music is like one thing that I think about all the time and I think is one of my primary jobs even as a sound designer is kind of to act as a translator between sort of emotional storytelling goals and technical stuff and pacing and that kind of thing and so, oftentimes, I find it easier to communicate about music using music itself than I do using just spoken word, because you know, music has the power to communicate so much nuance and and so much that words don't really do a good job at describing it. So, um, we actually invested a, a really great amount of time uh, cutting in temp music to a degree that um, I think is kind of atypical in that it was kind of like a, a fully through-composed mashup. Um, and we we got all these old references, like old production music libraries from the 60s and 70s and all the classic James Bond themes, and really spliced them together to the point where they, it had we released it to an audience in that state and licensed the music, it would have been fully presentable. Um, it wasn't rough around the edges. And it really served to communicate more about timing and more about the ways that uh, the music can interact with the dialogue and act as punchlines to jokes and really, you know, um, act as a kind of structural scaffolding for the rest of the storytelling than it was about setting tone. Uh, In that we have this amazing composer, Charlie, we know what he does, we love his voice, like, the tone of the music is good to go, like, we don't need to worry about that, but because the dialogue can move around so much, we really wanted to create very intricate like linkages between all the different elements uh before Charlie was involved so we were able to do that with all this temp music it's kind of like a scaffolding everything's built on it and then we could remove the scaffolding give it to Charlie and he had an understanding through a very efficient means of communication of how the music might sort of intertwine with everything so that that was a really it was a really cool process to discover and i loved it normally temp music i'm like ah yeah like it sets all (laughs) sorts of false expectations and like doesn't always serve the purposes that it needs to but this it was great it was really cool yeah what was the schedule like that you
2: were were you working on each episode consecutively or had you did you get all the dialogue done and then sort of work on each episode one by one
3: Sure, so there was a lot of overlap just thanks to the the fact that we had this amazing team of experts in all their crafts working on it, be it Joanna or be it Charlie or composer or Dan. Mm. Um, but sort of speaking more broadly, we had a week per episode focused almost entirely on dialogue and temp music, essentially. So that, it, that was a process in which we were choosing all the takes, getting all the timing and pacing set up, maybe adding that temp fully that was just just for timekeeping and not for sort of performative qualities laying in this temp music. It it was really about kind of um, solidifying the structure and the timing of everything. And then at that point we would ship that draft off to Joanna for Foley, to Charlie for music, to our distributors audible for their thoughts and approval. Mm -hmm. And then we would move on to the next episode and so on and so forth. And then in a kind of staggered way, that stuff would come back to us. And then uh we had another week per episode focused entirely on sound design and mixing and integrating that. And then finally we had like one or two days of final kind of revision um stuff per episode. So overall it was like maybe a four to six month process actually. Okay. Yeah. yeah including including, of course, the uh production of the the dialogue recording and whatnot. Yeah.
2: Yeah. 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 I mean, it must have been so much fun to be, have been involved from such an early stage, Jeremy, especially because, you know, when we're working in post on film and TV, you very rarely get the opportunity to be involved from that before production.
3: Yeah, it was, I mean, we all dream of it. Uh, so many people evangelize it for all the obvious reasons. And when you have the opportunity to do it, you're like, yes, of yeah. course, this yeah. is great. Um, and, you know, on a project like this, especially, you know, in the same way that like a cinematographer might get involved in a movie early, like... yeah a story told entirely through sound, like the sound people should probably be involved in yeah, that, right. <laughs> figuring it out. <laughs> so yeah, I mean kudos kudos to everyone who made that happen. It was just like such a it's what it made it so fun. And 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 you know also like then you can plan your work. You can think you have time to think. You have time to plan. And so you're not when when you're actually making the thing, there's a little less um of course there's playful experimentation involved in it, but there isn't there isn't the sense of, oh, I hope I get this right because I only have one shot at it. Because you've had enough time to plan things out to have conversations with folks like Joanna here. Yeah. We we even mapped out a ton of stuff just on paper, uh, on the script. So I I have these. I don't I don't know, Joanna, did I send those to you? The marked up scripts?
0: I think for some stuff, like I know that I know I received one or two of them for the the episode with the laser dancing. Yeah. Uh, or the laser simple. dancing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The the, the the cartwheeling through lasers, that was really helpful because, you know, it was something that was really helpful in so far as like I have worked on podcasts where by the time Foley gets it, things are so baked in in terms of timing, performance, cadence, even microphone technique with the talent um, that it's really hard for us to conceive how the Foley is going to properly sit in with certain things. So like when you have somebody, you know, doing cartwheels through lasers and they're dressed in like skin cat or skin tight catsuit leather. <laughs> and we're trying to evoke a sense of like, like, you know, your typical like early 2000s, like mission impossible style, um, laser sequence, listening to it and knowing full well that, you know, that the dialogue team and that Jeremy's already made these considerations for, us so that we don't have to feel like we're trying to fit a sound into a place it's not supposed to. Um, That's, I think, why it's so special to have your sound designers come in early in the process of podcasts, Mm. you know, because my goodness, like sometimes we're even in the film industry, we're brought on to fix issues with continuity, especially in Foley, fix issues of continuity, fix issues of uh, conforms and reshoots and all these things where it's 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 on us at that point to be the flexible ones to make something work. Whereas, and we sometimes compromise the ability to tell the story in a cleaner way or, or in a way that's more artful. But um, having Jeremy on board early, it, it, w- it was very reassuring. Um, and uh, it made for the Foley, especially, I'm sure everyone else in the crew can say this, it made for everything to be such a smooth process where we didn't have to worry about contorting ourselves to dodge lasers. We could instead... Make something really work and get the jokes to fit better, you know. So
2: it feels like it's been a real collaborative experience for you guys working on this, much more so than in a lot of other projects where you're kind of, you know, you're just given your job, you deliver the job, you hand it on, and you move on, which is really cool.
3: Totally, and that's that's what it's all about. Um, and it re- I think in this case, it really comes it really sort of derives... It, it's kind of embedded in the script in a lot of ways because the script is very, very specific about the kind of sonic moments that the story calls for with just enough specificity to always feel like you're supported and you know what direction to head in, but also with a great degree of latitude to to interpret as an artist and, and really sort of... Um, it, it's not uh, micromanaged mm. in a way either. So, it, yeah, it's really really
2: cool yeah well is it that joanna you used an interesting phrase earlier where you said that you're still trying to find the language of podcast foley and it almost seemed and from you jeremy from how you've described kind of how you wrote things down and plan things it's almost like you guys are starting to kind of write the manual on how to do this stuff properly yeah the
3: <laughs> the um the notation that I use, which is by no means a kind of uh standardized thing or anything like that, but it i I used to work in theater right um and one of the very first things I learned how to do in theater um i don't know if you've ever seen a Broadway mixer mix a musical, but it's incredible uh, on Broadway. You can only really have one microphone open at a time, otherwise they phase against each other, or they feed back, so it's really like watching a virtuoso piano player. And they're moving the faders line per line on VCA's. Just uh, it's totally an incredible thing to watch. And if you ever have an opportunity to watch it, I recommend it. Yeah. Um, but there was an amazing Broadway mixer who showed me the way that she notates her script to indicate all those fader moves line by line. And also, there's a thing that they do where like the console has a bunch of VCA's, and the VCA's are reassigned according to what characters are in the scene. So there's a notation that they'll use in the script to indicate, you know, what characters on each fader and when those changes happen and whatnot. And so I think I kind of like intuitively reached back to that, to, to do some of this stuff, even though we're working in, in post and it's happening after, the, it doesn't have to happen live, thank God, because I could never do that. <laughs> um, I, I think that's maybe where that instinct came from a bit. Yeah.
1: Yeah, interesting to know. And just on, maybe follow on from that, just about um, sort of writing the book on it. Uh, I thought we'd just talk a little bit about the mixing of mm. this podcast. Yeah, uh, and mixing like a, a drama or a comedy podcast in particular mm-hmm. that's very lively. Uh, it's it's an Audible distributed podcast, and yes. presumably most people will be listening to those on headphones. I hope so. so <laughs> <laughs> not you know sort of mono radio speakers or anything <laughs> like that. So. Um just I, I was just interested in the sort of spatial quality of the mixing and mm-hmm. how you approach that in terms of um trying to realize the space and sure. put characters in position
3: Yeah I'll I'll say that um we played with it a lot and the tendency was as we got to know the piece more and more um a, a less is more approach tended to settle in. So when we started mixing the piece, it was very wide. I, I've also done some binaural stuff and that kind of thing. This We consciously decided this kind of shouldn't be that. Um, mm. Okay, okay. Uh, But yeah, it, it, it ended up being kind of subtle in a way that I hope can kind of like, I, I don't know, there's this thing about the power of audio drama where on a film, all the visuals are kind of served to you On a plate as a viewer. And I think the real power of audio only projects, be it a podcast, audio drama, whatever it might be, is that you can kind of sort of provide a framework of a story for a listener. But ultimately, the visuals take place in their own imagination and you can kind of define them a little bit and say, okay, you know. Help that help guide them what's where and what's going on to the degree that you need to for the story to be clear. But, but leaving things kind of purposely, I don't want to say vague, but purposely open, mm. um, I think is maybe what makes it such a powerful medium because then those images can take place in the imagination, kind of custom tailored to your own interests. So, for instance, Joanna was speaking about that laser sequence and she was like, Oh, yeah, it's like a 2000s like cat suit. Um, <laughs> Uh, Mission Impossible thing, which is awesome, (laughs) totally valid, totally different from what's in my mind. In my mind, it's like uh, Ocean's (laughs) 12 kind of like, I don't know, it's just different. And that's the power of it all. Um, So I think kind of like promoting that openness is an important thing to do. And maybe I haven't thought about it before, but maybe by skewing things towards the more subtle... Uh maybe that's that's what I was reacting to. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh we did of course we did a ton of spatialization with Altiverb and slapper and that kind of thing, a ton of kind of uh reampy kinds of things. But we kept it on the on the subtle side, so it's really kind of subliminally influencing an audience rather than like uh slamming it upon them. With a few exceptions. Like there's a, a moment when Bo and Yang, um, Judy is in a cold storage locker, and we kind of um, spent a lot of time thinking about how we can create a reverb that both indicates the overall size of the space, but also somehow indicates how cold it is. Uh, So we ended up using a very, very long reverb, but um, high-passed.
0: Cold storage is in the next room. This place is huge. There are a lot of samples here. More than we thought. Gross. Definitely. Do you know which samples you need?
3: Yeah, section 6, row K.
0: Can't figure out how this stuff is organized. I guess it doesn't matter. Row... K. here we go.
3: To, I, I don't know it for me that just felt very cold almost like almost like the vapor leaving somebody's mouth mm. or something like that so there are moments where we we got more heavy-handed but those were served by subtlety elsewhere for sort of to create those contrasts i think that's very cool
2: yeah
1: interesting especially as you say um the idea of being subtle to leave the imagination open i guess like one of the issues you could say with binaural on that uh subject is that you're placing people so specifically in in that field so you know, it has that danger of constantly kind of telling people.
3: Yeah, totally. And so specifically, even that like the HRTF of the listener's head is going to be different. It's like almost too specific. I mean, I binaural is awesome, and I I love it, but I don't know. It's just like instinct told me that we didn't we didn't really need it. Like, yeah, you can tell what's going on and where everything is without that. And also, like Joanna mentioned, ultimately this project was about hearkening back to a cinematic experience. Mm. And using that as a very familiar place for the audience to immediately catch references like that slow-motion scene or, or or whatnot that then, in the writing, Adam could play with, could subvert, could turn into comedic moments. So um, with that in mind, you know, movies aren't, at least right now, typically binaural, and so we wanted to create a kind of familiar cinematic experience from which we could depart.
0: Right, Im- immersion in the sense of... of... Precise language cues or like sound metaphor cues um, that leave an open room versus immersion of like throwing the entire kitchen sink at it, which is is something that you know. For example, we could we could have rustled every character front to end with what clothing they were wearing. But does that serve a purpose in terms of a leaving things open for the viewers' hearing or b hearkening back to cinema? and i listen to cinema and i'm just like you don't always hear the rustle of all their clothing all the time anyways no in foley we cover it we'll cover it for the ME, but like but that's not that's not our intent here right so it's like we know we need a rattle for a pistol if someone's being held up we know we need clompy m- military boots if someone's being chased by security guards and maybe they handcuffs on their on their on their, wel- their belt on their belt you know that's that's the cinema language that's the sound language mm. but Do we need immersion in the sense of every voice is scientifically forensically placed in the in the field of binaural? Potentially not, you know. So I I totally agree. It's 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 easy to get in the weeds with it, but at the end of the day, the the listener is only going to really listen to each episode once or twice, tops. So we got to hit them in in an emotional, meaningful, narrative way that it sticks with them, you know, rather than a a purely. Purely an attempt to replicate reality. Yeah,
3: mm. and reality sometimes is kind of lame. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, let's yeah. be honest. Like, I mean, Ad- Adam claims that this. I mean. I'm not sure. I'm still suspicious, but in theory, this is supposedly a fiction podcast. So, you know, <laughs> why keep it real? <laughs> um, it, time may tell. <laughs> what What Joanna mentioned reminds me of this thing I learned a long time ago in in like theatrical scenography, where an audience, whether it's a- oral or beyond, an audience can't really keep track of three things more than three things at the same time. So, in opera, for instance that's used to an advantage in that you have a curtain that's opening laterally and vertically at the same time while a big set piece is emerging from that and the lights are doing something crazy. And it creates this sense of kind of controlled confusion from the audience That that is magical in some senses. But in this case, um, I think the same principle applies, but because there are so many plot twists that we need to be really careful our, um being communicated in as clear a way as possible as as a mixer I found that as I was mixing especially because the everything was like the beauty of it all is that there weren't really problems for me to clean up like everything was recorded in the best studios ever uh which was great so I could focus on creative stuff and I found myself basically the mixing process was all about moment per moment okay what one to three things going on right here are the things that are moving the story forward and anything else uh can kind of be be taken out of the mix for that moment and say for a later time or that kind of thing that's that's sort of what i i found myself um really actively doing
1: yeah it seems like a great rule especially yeah. with yeah you're not constrained easy to overcomplicate it you know um by trying to build too much of the world mm-hmm. you say don't need the rustle with the foley it's not it's not important
2: yeah and then also, as you were saying, how you find that you were doing the backgrounds last? Yeah, if, I guess if you needed them.
3: Yeah, it's very rare. I we I love cutting backgrounds. I love building environments and world building. Like that's why I got into this stuff. But definitely, I found that they weren't. Um, yeah, they aren't super prevalent. Um, or or there's this thing, like I read an essay a long time ago about how, like when uh, a let's say a human enters a forest, we notice all the sounds around us. But as our sort of cognitive uh, reptilian minds come to recognize that there isn't danger in our immediate surroundings, they kind of cognitively naturally kind of settle down to nothing. So if you walk in a forest, at first you notice all the crickets and all the owls hooting and the birds tweeting. And then if you've spent 15 minutes in the forest, all that's kind of going to be tuned out so that if there's a bear coming, you like can hear that coming in the foreground. And sometimes sort of artificially um, creating that effect in the mix can be kind of effective in that the, the background might be established at the beginning of the scene, mm. tells us where we are, and then we know where we are. So, mm. you know, other other things can shine. That's really interesting.
1: Yeah, definitely true of my field recording experience. The amount of times I've mm. thought, this is a great place to record, and then actually <laughs> yeah, thought about me too. it. And it's like, no, wait, there's traffic there. My brain's been tuning that out, or, you know, a number of other things I don't want the mic to pick up. So a great psychological effect to work to your advantage. Yeah, amazing well that i mean to me that seems like a great point to sort of end on really we've covered so much detail yeah, it's brilliant. It's been brilliant uh, really excited to hear the the final series when it comes out and yeah i'm sure
3: people listening to this podcast feel the same way yeah yeah i am so so psyched to listen to it too <laughs> 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 again <laughs> for a 400th time <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's it's coming out june 17th on audible it's called hot white heist excellent
1: thank you so much jeremy and joanna for to letting us know all about your craft in this. Yeah. Uh, and thanks to the rest of the team who couldn't join us. Um, yeah,
3: look forward to hearing that work. Th- thanks for having us. Such a such blessing. Great, great to reconnect. Yeah, totally. Here goes nothing.
2: Beginning clean room vacuum protocol. Vacuum complete. Beginning venting procedure now.
0: Venting error. Vacuum protocol halted. Judy? Are you okay? <coughs> Judy! What's going on? The door sealed! <coughs> uh, I'm gonna go get the other guys, okay? Fuck.
2: <coughs> <coughs> So that was a final excerpt from Hot White Heist, which we hope you all agree sounds fantastic. And I also hope that you enjoyed the discussion with Jeremy and Joanna as much as Owen and I did. For anyone who hasn't listened to all of our earlier episodes, Jeremy actually featured in episode five, our ambient isolation episode, which I still think is one of the best things we've produced so far, and particularly some of Jeremy's binaural recordings that he made during the initial lockdown of the first half of 2020.
1: Yeah, everything Jeremy does is a treat for the ears. So if you haven't heard that, we can roll back to previous episodes, find all our previous episodes on SoundCloud or anywhere you'd like to find your podcasts. So just from me, I just want to say thanks again to Jeremy and Joanna and Jeremy in particular for reaching out to us about his work to have a chat on this podcast series. It's always great to hear from someone who's keen to talk about their work and if you think you've created something or been part of something recently that would make an interesting podcast episode, then we'd welcome you to get in touch. You can find us via @amps_podcast on Twitter or send us an email to AmpsPodcast at gmail.com.
2: Yeah, now Amps membership is open to those working in sign for film, TV and games, as well as students who intend to make it their profession. So for more information about Amps and how you can become a member, please visit Amps.net. And until the next episode, we hope you all take care.
1: Yeah, catch you on the next one.
2: Toodaloo.
3: Hey, everybody. This is Tim from Tonebender's Sound Design Podcast. We've been on an awesome run of interviewing and talking to the people behind the best sounding movies of the last year. Films like Jesus and the Black Messiah, The Trial of the Chicago 7, Wonder Woman 1984, Nomadland, The Sound of Metal, Mank, The Dissident, and even Tenant. You want to hear these stories and more? Check them all out wherever you find your podcasts
0: or at tonebenderspodcast.com.
1: Hi, this is Christian from the A Sound Effect podcast. In our latest episode, you'll hear field recordist adventurer George Vlad from Mindful Audio talk about his travels and work, including his latest library, African Desert, all at asoundeffect.com forward slash podcast. Hi, this is Michael Helms, host of the Location Sound Podcast. My recent guest is production sound mixer Byron Mayer, based out of Copenhagen, Denmark. We talk about recording sound on the feature film Torbos, the official Oscar entry for South Africa. Check out the latest episode.